Chapter One, Part One of Partial Portraits. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Partial Portraits by Henry James. Chapter One, Emerson. Mr. Elliot Cabot has made a very interesting contribution to a class of books of which our literature, more than any other, offers admirable examples. He has given us a biography intelligently and carefully composed. These two volumes are a model of responsible editing. I use that term because they consist largely of letters and extracts from letters. Nothing could resemble less the manner in which the mere bookmaker strings together his frequently questionable pearls and shovels the heap into the presence of the public. Mr. Cabot has selected, compared, discriminated, steered an even course between meagerness and redundancy, and managed to be constantly and happily illustrative and his work, moreover, strikes us as the better done, from the fact that it stands for one of the two things that make an absorbing memoir a good deal more than for the other. If these two things be the conscience of the writer and the career of his hero, it is not difficult to see on which side the biographer of Emerson has found himself strongest. Ralph Waldo Emerson was a man of genius, but he led for nearly eighty years a life in which the sequence of events had little of the rapidity or the complexity that a spectator loves. There is something we miss very much as we turn these pages, something that has a kind of accidental, inevitable presence in almost any personal record something that may be most definitely indicated under the name of color. We lay down the book with a singular impression of paleness, an impression that comes partly from the tone of the biographer and partly from the moral complexion of his subject, but mainly from the vacancy of the page itself. That of Emerson's personal history is condensed into the single word concord, and all the condensation in the world will not make it look rich. It presents a most continuous surface. Mr. Matthew Arnold, in his Discourses in America, contests Emerson's complete right to the title of a man of letters. Yet letters surely were the very texture of his history. Passions, alternations, affairs, adventures had absolutely no part in it. It stretched itself out in enviable quiet, a quiet in which we hear the jotting of the pencil in the notebook. It is the very life for literature, I mean for one's own, not that of another. Fifty years of residence in the home of one's forefathers, pervaded by reading, by walking in the woods, and the daily addition of sentence to sentence.
if the interest of mr cabot's pencilled portrait is incontestable and yet does not spring from variety it owes nothing either to a source from which it might have borrowed much and which it is impossible not to regret a little that he has so completely neglected i mean a greater reference to the social conditions in which emerson moved the company he lived in the moral air he breathed if his biographer had allowed himself a little more of the ironic touch had put himself once in a way under the protection of saint beuve and had attempted something of a general picture we should have felt that he only went with the occasion i may overestimate the latent treasures of the field but it seems to me there was distinctly an opportunity an opportunity to make up moreover in some degree for the white tint of emerson's career considered simply in itself we know a man imperfectly until we know his society and we but half know a society until we know its manners this is especially true of a man of letters for manners lie very close to literature from those of the new england world in which emerson's character formed itself mr cabot almost averts his lantern though we feel sure that there would have been delightful glimpses to be had and that he would have been in a position that is that he has all the knowledge that would enable him to help us to them it is as if he could not trust himself knowing the subject only too well this adds to the effect of extreme discretion that we find in his volumes, but it is the cause of our not finding certain things, certain figures and scenes, evoked. What is evoked is Emerson's pure spirit, by a copious, sifted series of citations and comments but we must read as much as possible between the lines and the picture of the transcendental time to mention simply one corner has yet to be painted the lines have yet to be bitten in meanwhile we are held and charmed by the image of emerson's mind and the extreme appeal which his physiognomy makes to our art of discrimination it is so fair, so uniform and impersonal, that its features are simply fine shades, the gradations of tone of a surface, whose proper quality was of the smoothest, and on which nothing was reflected with violence. It is a pleasure of the critical sense to find, with Mr. Cabot's extremely intelligent help, a notation for such delicacies. We seem to see the circumstances of our author's origin, immediate and remote, in a kind of high vertical moral light, the brightness of a society at once very simple and very responsible. The rare singleness that was in his nature, so that he was all the warning moral voice, without distraction or counter-solicitation, was also in the stock he sprang from, clerical for generations on both sides, and clerical in the Puritan sense. His ancestors had lived long, for nearly two centuries, in the same corner of New England, 
and during that period had preached and studied and prayed and practiced. It is impossible to imagine a spirit better prepared in advance to be exactly what it was, better educated for its office in its faraway unconscious beginnings. There is an inner satisfaction in seeing so straight, although so patient, a connection between the stem and the flower, and such a proof that when life wishes to produce something exquisite in quality, she takes her measures many years in advance. A conscience like Emerson's could not have been turned off, as it were, from one generation to another. A succession of attempts, a long process of refining, was required. His perfection in his own line comes largely from the non-interruption of the process. As most of us are made up of ill-assorted pieces, his reader, and Mr. Cabot's, envies him this transmitted unity, in which there was no mutual hustling or crowding of elements. It must have been a kind of luxury to be, that is to feel so homogeneous, and it helps to account for his serenity, his power of acceptance, and that absence of personal passion which makes his private correspondence read like a series of beautiful circulars or expanded cards pour prendre congé. He had the equanimity of a result. Nature had taken care of him, and he had only to speak. He accepted himself as he accepted others, accepted everything, and his absence of eagerness, or, in other words, his modesty, was that of a man with whom it is not a question of success, who has nothing invested or at stake. The investment, the stake, was that of the race, of all the past Emersons and Bulkleys and Waldos. There is much that makes us smile today in the commotion produced by his secession from the mild Unitarian pulpit. We wonder at a condition of opinion in which any utterance of his should appear to be wanting in superior piety, in the essence of good instruction." All that is changed, the great difference, has become the infinitely small, and we admire a state of society in which scandal and schism took on no darker hue. But there is even yet a sort of drollery in the spectacle of a body of people among whom the author of The American Scholar and of The Address of 1838 at the Harvard Divinity College passed for profane, and who failed to see that he only gave his plea for the spiritual life the advantage of a brilliant expression. They were so provincial as to think that brilliancy came ill-recommended, and they were shocked at his ceasing to care for the prayer and the sermon. They might have perceived that he was the prayer and the sermon, not in the least a secularizer, but in his own subtle, insinuating way, a sanctifier. Of the three periods into which his life divides itself, the first was, as in the case of most men, that of movement, experiment, and selection, that of effort too, and painful probation. 
Emerson had his message, but he was a good while looking for his form, the form which, as he himself would have said, he never completely found, and of which it was rather characteristic of him that his later years, with their growing refusal to give him the word, wishing to attack him in his most vulnerable point, where his tenure was least complete, had in some degree the effect of despoiling him. It all sounds rather bare and stern, Mr. Cabot's account of his youth and early manhood, and we get an impression of a terrible paucity of alternatives. If he would be neither a farmer nor a trader, he could teach school. That was the main resource and a part of the general educative process of the young New Englander who proposed to devote himself to the things of the mind. There was an advantage in the nudity, however, which was that, in Emerson's case at least, the things of the mind did get themselves admirably well considered. If it be his great distinction, and his special sign, that he had a more vivid conception of the moral life than any one else, it is probably not fanciful to say that he owed it in part to the limited way in which he saw our capacity for living illustrated. The plain God-fearing practical society which surrounded him was not fertile in variations. It had great intelligence and energy, but it moved altogether in the straightforward direction. On three occasions later, three journeys to Europe, he was introduced to a more complicated world, but his spirit, his moral taste, as it were, abode always within the undecorated walls of his youth. There he could dwell with that ripe unconsciousness of evil which is one of the most beautiful signs by which we know him. His early writings are full of quaint animadversion upon the vices of the place and time, but there is something charmingly vague, light, and general in the arraignment. Almost the worst he can say is that these vices are negative and that his fellow townsmen are not heroic. We feel that his first impressions were gathered in a community from which misery and extravagance, and either extreme of any sort, were equally absent. What the life of New England fifty years ago offered to the observer was the common lot, in a kind of achromatic picture, without particular intensifications. It was from this table of the usual, the merely typical joys and sorrows, that he proceeded to generalize, a fact that accounts in some degree for a certain inadequacy and thinness in his enumerations. But it helps to account also for his direct intimate vision of the soul itself, not in its emotions, its contortions and perversions, but in its passive, exposed, yet healthy form. He knows the nature of man, and the long tradition of its dangers, but we feel that whereas he can put his finger on the remedies, lying for the most part as they do, in the deep recesses of virtue, of the spirit, he has only a kind of hearsay, uninformed acquaintance with the disorders. 
It would require some ingenuity, the reader may say too much, to trace closely this correspondence between his genius and the frugal, dutiful, happy, but decidedly lean Boston of the past, where there was a great deal of will, but very little fulcrum, like a ministry without an opposition. The genius itself, it seems to me, impossible to contest. I mean the genius for seeing character as a real and supreme thing. Other writers have arrived at a more complete expression. Wordsworth and Goethe, for instance, give one a sense of having found their form, whereas with Emerson we never lose the sense that he is still seeking it but no one has had so steady and constant and above all so natural a vision of what we require and what we are capable of in the way of aspiration and independence with emerson it is ever the special capacity for moral experience always that and only that we have the impression somehow that life had never bribed him to look at anything but the soul and indeed in the world in which he grew up and lived the bribes and lures the beguilements and prizes were few he was in an admirable position for showing what he constantly endeavoured to show that the prize was within any one who in new england at that time could do that was sure of success of listeners and sympathy most of all, of course, when it was a question of doing it with such a divine persuasiveness. Moreover, the way in which Emerson did it added to the charm, by word of mouth, face to face, with a rare, irresistible voice and a beautiful, mild, modest authority. If Mr. Arnold is struck with the limited degree in which he was a man of letters, I suppose it is because he is more struck with his having been, as it were, a man of lectures. But the lecture surely was never more purged of its grossness, the quality in it that suggests a strong light and a big brush, than as it issued from Emerson's lips, so far from being a vulgarization it was simply the esoteric made audible, and, instead of treating the few as the many, after the usual fashion of gentlemen on platforms, he treated the many as the few. There was probably no other society at that time in which he would have got so many persons to understand that, for we think the better of his audience as we read him, and wonder where else people would have had so much moral attention to give it is to be remembered however that during the winter of eighteen forty seven to forty eight on the occasion of his second visit to england he found many listeners in london and in provincial cities mr cabot's volumes are full of evidence of the satisfactions he offered the delights and revelations he may be said to have promised to a race which had to seek its entertainment its rewards and consolations almost exclusively in the moral world but his own writings are fuller still we find an instance almost wherever we open them Quote, all these great and transcendent properties are ours. Let us find room for this great guest in our small houses. 
where the heart is there the muses there the gods sojourn and not in any geography of fame massachusetts connecticut river and boston bay you think paltry places and the ear loves names of foreign and classical topography but here we are and if we will tarry a little we may come to learn that here is best the jerseys were handsome enough ground for washington to tread and london streets for the feet of milton that country is fairest which is inhabited by the noblest minds End quote. we feel or suspect that milton is thrown in as a hint that the london streets are no such great place and it all sounds like a sort of pleading consolation against bleakness the beauty of a hundred passages of this kind in emerson's pages is that they are effective that they do come home that they rest upon insight and not upon ingenuity and that if they are sometimes obscure it is never with the obscurity of paradox we seem to see the people turning out into the snow after hearing them glowing with a finer glow than even the climate could give and fortified for a struggle with overshoes and the east wind Quote, look to it first and only that fashion custom authority pleasure and money are nothing to you are not as bandages over your eyes that you cannot see but live with the privilege of the immeasurable mind not too anxious to visit periodically all families and each family in your parish connection when you meet one of these men or women be to them a divine man be to them thought and virtue let their timid aspirations find in you a friend let their trampled instincts be genially tempted out in your atmosphere let their doubts know that you have doubted and their wonder feel that you have wondered when we set against an exquisite passage like that or like the familiar sentences that open the essay on history quote, he that is admitted to the right of reason is made freeman of the whole estate what Plato has thought he may think, what a saint has felt he may feel, what at any time has befallen any man he can understand. End quote. When we compare the letters cited by Mr. Cabot to his wife from Springfield, Illinois, January 1853, we feel that his spiritual tact needed to be very just, but that if it was so, it must have brought a blessing. Quote, Here I am in the deep mud of the prairies, misled, I fear, into this bog, not by a will of the wisp, such as shine in bogs, but by a young New Hampshire editor, who overestimated the strength of both of us, and fancied I should glitter in the prairie and draw the prairie birds and waders it rains and thaws incessantly and if we step off the short street we go up to the shoulders perhaps in mud my chamber is a cabin my fellow-boarders are legislators two or three governors or ex-governors live in the house i cannot command daylight and solitude for study or for more than a scrawl End quote. 
And another extract, quote, A cold, raw country this, and plenty of night travelling, and arriving at four in the morning, to take the last and worst bed in the tavern. Advancing day brings mercy and favour to me, but not the sleep. Mercury, fifteen degrees below zero. I find well-disposed kindly people among these sinewy farmers of the north, but in all that is called cultivation they are only ten years old. End quote. He says in another letter in 1860, I saw Michigan and its forests and the wolverines pretty thoroughly. And on another page Mr. Cabot shows him as speaking of his engagements to lecture in the West as the obligation to wade and freeze and ride and run and suffer all manner of indignities. This was not New England, but as regards the country districts throughout at that time, it was a question of degree. Certainly never was the fine wine of philosophy carried to remoter or queerer corners. Never was a more delicate diet offered to two or three governors or ex-governors living in a cabin. It was mercury, shivering in a mackintosh, bearing nectar and ambrosia to the gods, whom he wished those who lived in cabins to endeavor to feel that they might be. End of chapter 1, part 1, Emerson